Oh, good evening. How are we doing tonight? All right, good. All right, well, I want to begin. So, Pastor PJ, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I'm going to elaborate on some of that because it has to deal with some of what we're going to talk about tonight. But I really want to begin tonight uh, asking a question. Um, and it's kind of indicative of where we're going tonight. So th- this is the question. Have you ever felt overwhelmed at the lost? Have you ever felt overwhelmed for the lost? And I, I think that's an important question to ask ourselves, especially, you know, where we're going to go tonight. Uh, I want to take a minute to share with you an experience of mine uh, where I felt overwhelmed for the lost. So as Pastor PJ said, uh, I'm in the Marines. I'm at the 1st Marine Division. Uh, I, my first duty station was in Okinawa, Japan. And if you don't know Okinawa, it's, uh, it's an island off the southern tip of mainland Japan, so that allowed me to travel quite a bit, Um, and one of my favorite places to go was Tokyo, and uh, so you hop on the plane, go over to Tokyo, and in Tokyo, there's this tourist attraction, and if you've ever been to Tokyo, it's a place that you have to go when you go there, and it's called the Shibuya Crossing, and in the Shibuya Crossing, essentially, it's this place where four uh, different subways release onto this intersection. You can see uh, the, this massive humanity that, that crosses, and, and what happens in this intersection is that all the lights stop, like all the traffic stops, and people are allowed to cross, right? And so I'm up in Tokyo, I'm traveling, uh, doing my thing, and I come up upon this uh, intersection, and it, it uh, blows my mind, right? So I start looking into it, 2,500 pedestrians at one time cross. Every 30 minutes, the number of people that cross could fill a football stadium of 45,000 people. Daily, a million people cross the Shibuya Crossing. I did my time at the Shibuya Crossing. You can see me there taking a selfie at the Shibuya Crossing. But that prompted me to look more into, I'm surrounded by this mass of humanity as I'm traveling in Tokyo, and that prompted me to look into some of the statistics. Uh, Did you know that in the Tokyo metropolitan area, 13 million people call Tokyo home? So I started doing some more looking into this area uh, out of an entire population of 121 million people. That's the population of Japan. There's approximately 500,000 Christians who live in the entire country. So of a population of 121,500,000 Christians. So that realization kind of hit me that unlike America, where we, most people that we interact with, we believe are saved or or that have a claim to Christianity, these people don't even have that. There, There is no claim to Christianity. And that's the first time that I remember, and I remember so vividly thinking, I have this burden for the lost. So that's kind of that experience is kind of where we're going to go tonight. So turn in your Bibles with me uh, to Matthew chapter 9. And as you may know, we're studying parables this semester in in third nine. And and while this is more of a saying that we're going to look at tonight, still holds that it's a message with a point. And in this saying, Jesus is burdened for the lost. And our passage tonight is Matthew 9, 37. But before we get there, let me just set up some of this context. In verse 35, if you're looking in your Bibles with me, it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So Jesus is here. He's interacting with the people. He's engaged in his ministry of teaching and healing. 
And he sees this mass of humanity and realizes their need for salvation. And we know this because in verse 36 it says this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus has this moment of burden, that moment where your heart sinks and cries out for the vastness of the lost. So now we come to our passage for tonight, verse 37. It says this. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So Jesus here uses this metaphor to explain this pit in his stomach. Being far removed from an agricultural culture, I think this just could use a little clarification. Because you see, we, we go to the grocery store when we need food. We don't normally grow a lot of food. So in ancient times, the, the harvest was more of a, a celebration. Many of the feasts that the Israelites had surrounded the harvest. Many who lived in villages and cities would go to live in the fields for the harvest season. And there was generally two times a year that they gathered harvest, once in early spring and then once again at the beginning of fall. And it was this intensive time and required even children to help. And if there wasn't enough labor, workers were paid to assist. So the kinds of things that were harvested, grain, vegetables, and fruit, all were harvested at this time. And I just want to dig deep in just for a moment to the grain harvest because I think it's indicative of labor so the actual harvest for grain required a sickle. So they would go out into the fields, and grain, if you don't know, it grows in stalks about, you know, yay high. And they would grab a bundle of the grain, and they would cut it with a sickle, which is just a sharp knife. And then they would fling that off to the side, and the children would grab these stalks, and they would load it up onto carts. And then the carts were transported to what's called the threshing floor. And the threshing floor was this prepared pit, and it was at an exposed position to the wind. And it was circular, about 25 to 40 feet in diameter. And they would, they would uh, pick out the stones, they would wet the ground, and then sweep it. And they would take these sheaves of grain, and they'd put it on the threshing floor. And then after they put it on the threshing floor, they would, an oxen would go around in a circular motion, and he would drag along this stone. And what that did, it was it, it cut up these stalks. And if you don't know anything about wheat, I, I'm from Montana, so... That's kind of where, you know, Wheat, Montana and all that. So I feel like I have a, a closer connection to this with, than some of you. But uh, wheat is, is uh, it, it's little berries that are at the top of the stalks, right? And then what's covering the berry is a little, sh it's called a shaft. And the shaft is this, it's not edible. You have to separate the shaft from the berry because the berry is what gives you flour. And so what they would do is they would gather this mixture that had been cut up from this stone and they would gather it and then they would call what's called winnowing. And they would take an instrument and they would scoop under it and fling it up in the air. And in doing that, the wind would carry this chaff off the berry so that the berry would fall down, the chaff and the berry are separated. And that, the berries would be gathered up and put into pots and then distributed, given for tithes, and etc. So as you can see, that's a lengthy process. It's a laborious process. And this is kind of the idea that Jesus had in mind, that it required the help of many different people. Everyone from the family to the hired workers, they, they worked to accomplish that year's harvest. And that's what Jesus was say, had in mind when he said, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers, a few. And obviously this is a metaphor, and, and given its context, we know that Jesus isn't speaking about a literal harvest, but he's, he's talking about lost souls. He's involved in ministry. He's healing people. He's teaching people. And he takes a moment to reflect on the vastness of his current situation, that there are a lot of people who haven't heard the good news of salvation. 
And on this side of the cross, we can take that wisdom of Jesus and make it practical for our own age. If we were to break down what Jesus says in order to apply it to our modern context, it might read something like this. There's a a lot of non-Christians and not a lot of Christians. So that brings us to our first point. If you're taking notes, our first point, realize the vastness of the harvest. So one of the great benefits about living in America is that it seems like everyone's a Christian, right? In our cultural context, this this might seem true. Um, Study after study shows that about 80% of of Americans identify as being a born-again Christian. And that's a subject that we'll return to in a moment. But when we live with this in mind, it it takes away from the real need of the gospel. And so what I want to do now is I just want to show you the need for the gospel by just giving a brief survey of our current demographics, starting with the whole world and then ending with Orange County. So bear with me. Uh, I'm going to have some stuff on the slide so you can reference it. You can write some stuff down. But the Joshua Project, if you're not familiar with that organization, uh, I'd encourage you to go to their website and check out their mission. But they track people groups. So this Greek word ethnos, it's, it can be translated nations, as in when Jesus says in the Great Commission, go, out, go into all the nations. But a better identifier would be people groups. And, and even ethnos sounds like our English word ethnicity. So the Joshua Project defi- identifies uh, people groups as Two, two qualifications. All individuals in a group understand each other reasonably well, and the cultural and relationship barriers aren't so high that the transmission of the gospel is seriously impeded. So we're not talking about individual nations. We're talking about people groups within nations. So according to the Joshua Project statistics, almost 42% of the world remains in an unreached status, which means that less than 2% are evangelical Christians. And when I say evangelical Christian... I mean that Christians who are committed to the faith, who believe in the inerrancy of scripture, who are practicing Christians. For the unreached, for the most part, they don't have a Christian community. And in, they don't have Christian community, they don't have other believers, and they don't have an actual building. They may not even have ready access to Christian material to include the Bible. And it could mean that they've never heard the gospel. So to put a number to that, that's about 3.16 billion people are in the unreached status. 3.16 billion people. 7% are minimally reached, which means that there are less than 2% evangelical Christians and between 5 and 50% professing Christians. So in that, the 5 to 50% professing Christians includes Catholics and people who may not be uh, authentic Christians. 10% are superficially reached, which means uh, 50% may be professing Christians, but under 2% are evangelical Christians. So if you you add all that up, you're talking about like 6% of 60% are maybe evangelical Christians. And to put a number to that, it's about 4.5 billion people who have little access to the gospel, a church community, or are Christians. 4.5 billion people. So let's take a look at some of these people groups in particular. Asia is known to the largest mass of humanity in the world. In 2019, China had a population of 1.4 billion people. India had a population of 1.3 billion people. In China, uh, this is what's on the slide here, 9% of the total population are Christians, or about 126 million. Uh, 7% are evangelical, so that number even shrieks down to uh, about 89 million. And obviously we know that Christians are repressed by the government and are unable to practice their religion openly. 
According to the Joshua Project, 146 million people in China haven't even heard the gospel. So there have been great gains in Chinese Christianity in the past two decades. But the fact remains this, that if a cataclysmic event happened today that instantly wiped out China, some 1.3 billion people would be going to hell. 1.3 billion people. So India provides similar insight, and that's what's on this slide. While we don't have statistics necessarily for evangelicals, we can say about 2.9% are professing Christians and that uh, of the 1.3 billion people in uh, India. And that, that number includes Catholics, so that's about 24 million people. Uh, 80% of the population identifies with Hinduism. It's the dominant religious, cultural, and social force in the nation of India. Uh, there's somewhere in the, in the realm of 10 to 15 million truly converted Christians in the entire subcontinent of India. And, and that's in compared with 1.3 billion people. So this is the reality of this, is that if a cataclysmic event happened in India tonight, some 1.2 billion people might be going to hell. The 1040 window, if you're not familiar with that, it's a geographic location that includes the Middle East, West Asia, and North Africa. It's the most unreached location in the world. Uh, according to the Joshua Project, 5 billion people live in the 1040 window, and of those, 3 billion are unreached. Uh, and for a large portion of Christians in this area, there are, there's rampant persecution in places such as Saudi Arabia and Yemen. It's illegal to be a Christian. And in fact, when I was doing the research for this, I discovered that Yemen has four Christian churches in the entire country. And of those four, three of them are Roman Catholic. If a cataclysmic event occurred in the 1040 window that wiped out every person who lived there, the, the reality is some 4.5 billion people would be going to hell. Europe has uh, long been considered a bastion of Christianity. Spread of Christianity started in the Middle East and then it rapidly came to Rome and, and the rest of Europe. It's the center of Roman Catholicism. It's the site of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, today, there are some 741 million people who live in Europe. According to the Pew Research Center, 91% say they are Christians. But only 22% of Europeans say they go to church more than once a month, and that includes Catholics. So that's about 133 million. So uh, if you uh, shrink that down, it's about 2.9% of Europeans would be considered evangelical. So of 741 million, we're talking 22 million who are evangelical. So uh, the reality is if, if a cataclysmic event happened to Europe tonight, 720 million people might be going to hell. United States, too, has been considered a safe haven of Christianity, a supposedly Christian nation, as we know. And like I said, over 80% of the 320 million people in America would say that they're a born-again Christian. However, this term is sometimes a misnomer. And just, come, just because someone checks a box that they're born again doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. According to the book, The Great Evangelical Recession, uh, it's estimated that there are closer to 6 to 8% of people who would be considered evangelical in the United States, and that's about two in 10. So that means of a class of 300 people at your school, that, that may mean there are 30 evangelical Christians. In a workplace of 50, that might mean that there are five Christians. And if you think it's getting better, you're wrong. My, my generation, millennials, uh, 
which is about 1980 to 1995, saw the first major departure in American Christianity in several decades. Uh, George Barna has written much on the religious nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, that meaning that they don't have a religious belief. Uh, among millennials, the, the, uh, uh, among the number of young people who have no belief in God, it's around 42%, which is what this slide is showing you. Um, those of you who are born after 1995 are technically part of uh, Gen Z, Generation Z, iGen. Uh, George Barna released a study that stated that atheism has doubled in Gen Z and that they are truly, quote, the first post-Christian generation. This is the America that we live in. In, in this supposedly Christian nation, if a cataclysmic event were to happen tonight in America, maybe somewhere in the ballpark of 300 million people would be going to hell. But how about uh, our own backyard? What's the religious state of, of Orange County? So there are approximately uh, 210 to 310,000 evangelical, uh, I'm sorry, people, no, I'm sorry, 3 million people in Orange County. And using that 6 to 8% figure, that figures about about. 210,000 to 310,000 evangelical Christians in Orange County, or about 2 in 10. Uh, in the event of a, of a cataclysmic event, some 2.7 million people would be going to hell. And they, and they wouldn't be people without a face. They'd, they'd be your neighbors, and they'd be your friends, your coworkers, your fellow students. So the bottom line is this, is that even in our own county, the need for the gospel is great. I don't say all this to make you drop everything and run off to India or China, although if God is calling you, then I would encourage you to go. But rather, I just want us to reconsider the state of Christianity macro and micro. I want us to understand the need for the gospel on a worldwide scale. But I also want us not to be lulled into this sense of security that most of the world is right with God. Because it's not. And on a micro level, I want us to realize the need of the gospel, even in conservative Orange County. And I just gave you a lot of numbers and a lot of statistics. And I hope it, what, I, what I'm trying to do is I want you to give you a better picture of the state of the world, the state of our nation, the state of our country. The need for the gospel is great. And we should feel that burden. So what do we do with all this information? It would be easy for us just to cast a blind eye to the reality of our current situation. But when we're faced with this reality, we can't help but feel helpless, right? 1.3 billion people in India, 1.4 billion people in China. It doesn't seem like we can do very much. But here are three practical things we can do this week. So first of all, we need to grieve for the lost. We need to grieve for the lost. When we realize the vastness of the harvest, we need to have this sense of urgency and I hope this brace survey has given you a pit in the bottom of your stomach. I hope it's heavy on your heart that you realize the significance of the lost in this world. And to have this reminder should bring us to a place where we're in grief. And our grief should lead us to action. Look at the example of Jesus. He says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what does this information motivate him to do? Well, we can see in Matthew 10.5, it's just on the next page. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus was grieved, overwhelmed, burdened from the lost, but he didn't just sit back with this information. He and his disciples acted. But we must first have that burden and then act on it. So we need to be grieved for the lost. Second, we can, we can pray for the lost. We can pray for the lost. Look what Jesus says in, in Matthew 9.38. It's a verse after our passage tonight. It, it says this, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What does Jesus prescribe for the vastness of the harvest? To pray for laborers. 
And there, there's a sense that we're to participate as laborers, and it's a point that we'll get to in just a moment. But just for now, let's think. When, when was the last time that you prayed for the lost? When was the last time that you felt overwhelmed at the lost? When was the last time you stepped into your 300-person class where some maybe 270 people are unbelievers and you prayed for them to know the living God who has saved you in your sins and has the potential to save more? But further, when was the last time we prayed for our missionaries? When was the last time that you thought outside your cultural context and prayed for the loss across the world? Because, because the reality is, as we saw, that most of the world is lost. When we realize the vastness of the loss, it should bring us to our knees in prayer. But we can't stop at prayer. We, we should pray for the lost, but there's also a sense that you and I and all Christians are a part of God's plan in saving people. There's a sense that we should be involved in the labor of the harvest. And Jesus is saying here that there aren't enough laborers. So that brings us to point number two. Number two, be a laborer for the kingdom of God. Be a laborer for the kingdom of God. So in, in verse 35 in Matthew 9, we, we briefly looked at the context of our passage tonight, but I want, I want to turn your attention to this phrase that Matthew uses. In, in verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what is this gospel of the kingdom, and how is that relevant to being a laborer? Well, turn in your Bibles to a passage that might be familiar on this topic, Matthew 28. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. And just to give you a brief context, we're familiar with this, but this is, this is last, Jesus' last days on earth, and before ascending into heaven, he gives his disciples specific instructions. So read with me in, in verse 16, it says this. And Jesus came out and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So notice first that all authority has on, on earth, in heaven and on earth, has been given to Jesus. So there are typically three offices that we associate with Jesus. That of prophet, so he spoke as a prophet, being a mouthpiece of God in his earthly, earthly ministry. Priest, Hebrews says that Jesus is our high priest, right? And king, right? So this passage in part refers to his kingship. Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And on this side of the cross, he's the ruling king. And this text tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So this is a side of Jesus that we don't often think about, that Jesus is the king. And a kingdom is simply that where a ruler has dominion. Jesus then has dominion over all aspects of the kingdom because all authority has been given to him. And there's an element of this that's twofold. So this is this dichotomy that we call the already not yet, right? So we understand that someday that Jesus will set up a literal kingdom, a literal physical kingdom in the millennial reign. But there's another aspect of Jesus' kingdom that goes back to all authority has been given to me. So listen to this. Mike Goldsworthy, he says this. God's kingdom has a dual dimension. God initiated the kingdom on earth, and wherever God's will is carried out, the kingdom is a reality. The kingdom, however, has not been fully manifested in Jesus' day, nor has it in ours. We do not yet live in a world where God's will is a complete reality. We feel the tension of experiencing God's kingdom in our lives and communities before it's fully realized. We see unbelief, brokenness, and sin telling us God's will is not yet fully expressed. So recall this point. Wherever God's will is carried out, the kingdom is a reality. Thus, whenever we act in God's will, 
the kingdom becomes a physical reality on earth. So when we engage in righteousness, when we see lives changed by the gospel, when we build up the kingdom in evangelism, we are expressing, experiencing God's kingdom in our lives and communities before it's fully realized. And what, what amazing reality that is. So in essence, when we take in, in, in part of kingdom building, we get a sneak peek of what the future kingdom will be. And that kingdom refers to a time that will be made, everything will be made right, where the lion will lay down with the lamb. We should be motivated to be part of kingdom building because of this. But, but also it illustrates this, this key fact that Jesus is king because all authority has been given to him. So then he commissions his disciples in, in Matthew 28. He says this to them. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what are we talking about here? Well, it's twofold. First, when we baptize someone, that means that they first must be a Christian, right? That necessarily implies that Jesus is asking his disciples to preach the gospel and thus convert the unsaved. But second, he's, also, he's telling us more than that, that we're to make disciples. And a disciple is, someone, is simply someone who follows a teacher. So if you play guitar, for example, and, and you love the Beatles, you're a disciple of the Beatles because you try to emulate the Beatles in your own guitar playing. So two Christians are emulating Jesus. He's our master. And Jesus even tells his disciples to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So when Jesus says to make disciples of all nations, he's talking comprehensively. He's not just talking about evangelism, but to make disciples. And discipleship involves teaching others the commandments of Jesus about how to lo love Jesus better, about how to follow Jesus better, and most importantly, how to be more like Jesus. And that's something that you and I should be doing already as Christians. The reality of the matter is that this Great Commission is not simply just about evangelism. It includes making disciples. And, and this is going a little off topic, but let, let me just address this uh, as a sidebar, if you will. Can, what, who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? And, and how are you exercising the Great Commission in your life this week? And if your answer is, well, no one, then, then I would encourage you to make a priority in your life this week. That requires you to know the commands of Jesus, that we're reading our Bibles, that we're praying, that we're understanding what God requires of Christians, and then commuting, communicating those truths to others. That's an integral part of being a Christian. And in doing so, we see the coming kingdom manifest on earth. So what does all this mean? Uh, let's put it together. So first, we as Christians, we live in God's kingdom with King Jesus reigning. And thus, when he commissions his disciples, he speaks across time and directly to us as Christians that we are to make disciples. The bottom line is this, is that we're called to make disciples. And second, since we live in Jesus' kingdom and he has commissioned us with this mission, we're to act out this mission in our lives. Realize this, that we've been given a mission by Jesus. That means that we're to obey King Jesus in accomplishing that mission. We are to make disciples. We are to see others come to Christ, and we are to teach others the commandments of Jesus. And I only said it once, but, or maybe twice, but other than that, I haven't said this, that word evangelism, this, this sermon, but this is a sermon on evangelism. And the reality of what I just explained is that we're called to be evangelists. We're called to be proclaimers of the gospel. We're called to speak the truth of the gospel into the lives of everyone around us. And that, rea that reality also includes disobedience. So recognize this, that when Jesus says, make disciples, and we are not actively 
involved in doing that. We are living in disobedience to the king. Being an evangelist is not an option. It is an imperative command given to us directly from King Jesus. Thus, we are to act in obedience to the king. So the mission is clear. Our role in the kingdom is clear. And now we must go out and we must be effective laborers for the kingdom. But let me ask this first. What holds us back from being effective laborers? If we're Christians, we've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, it should be our deepest desire to see others come to Christ, shouldn't it? But we give excuses why we don't evangelize, why we don't make disciples. So here are some excuses that we give about not evangelizing. How about this one? I'm too scared. I'm too scared. And to say this, I I just direct you back to what Jesus said, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is in control, right? We've been given the knowledge of eternal life, and for that knowledge to be shared with others should be a great comfort to them. We aren't told that this is something that's going to be comfortable. And even Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 19, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. So there's a real sense that the world hates Christians and Christianity, but, but we don't stop there. Jesus said that all authority has been given to me. Thus, we should pronounce the gospel with boldness, and we should do it even when we're scared. There shouldn't be a reason to be scared because we have King Jesus on our side. How about this one? I, I don't know enough. It was Jesus who said in Matthew eighteen three, he says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Evangelism doesn't require that you answer every objection that the other person might have. Rather, it's about being obedient to the King Jesus. For the Christian, we've been saved. We know those core tenets of the gospel. So I would encourage you to keep looking into defense of the gospel, apologetics. But since we've been saved by that basic message of the gospel, that should be sufficient to communicate to someone else how they are to come into the fold, how they are to be saved. How about this one? I'm too lazy. I'm too lazy. When we think about those things and which are motivated to do, like what, what are they, right? So let's say that you had a significant other that you were texting, that you're courting, we'll say. You're texting back and forth, and you get that text you know, from them, and you have that smile on your face, that feeling in your stomach, right? So imagine if we took that approach with that man or woman that we're romantically involved with in evangelism. Wouldn't you text them back and forth because you just don't feel like it? There's no doubt that in that situation, you would do everything that you could to talk to them, to know them, right? And I I feel like that sometimes is not the way that we approach evangelism, that we're lazy. There should be nothing more important to us that others receive the enlightenment of the gospel. So we can't be lazy in evangelism. How about these two? My neighbor will do it, which is similar to I'll do it tomorrow. My neighbor will do it or I'll do it tomorrow. So there's several objections to this. First, we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. We don't even know if we're going to make it tomorrow. Uh, I have a coworker friend of mine, and uh, we got back from uh, something that we were doing, and he, we got cut to chow, right, which is our way of saying lunch. And he went to the chow hall, which is our way of saying the cafeteria. So he went to the cafeteria, the chow hall, and he was paying, 
And all of a sudden, he just, they don't know what's, what's wrong, what was wrong with him, but he just blacked out, and he hit the ground, and he chipped his tooth real bad. But he, they took him over to medical, and uh, they looked at him, and they said, you've got to go to the hospital and get some tests done. So they took him to the hospital. They did some tests on him, did M- M- MRI, and they determined that he was bleeding in his brain from this fall. Just a freak thing that happened to this kid. And so he was airlifted from the hospital in Camp Pendleton over to some other hospital, and they had to cut open his head and extract the blood. And this was like seemingly, I, I remember like talking to him that morning, a seemingly innocuous, run-of-the-mill day. And it ended with this kid. Like the next time I saw him, he had staples all across his head because they had to cut open his brain to let this blood drip. And it's like, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We, any one of us on the way home, we could be in a fatal car accident. And yet we give these excuses as a way to delay the inevitable. Uh, I, on the contrary, it should be our joy in obedience to the king that we have the opportunity to share the good news. So don't delay. Make the transmission of the gospel gospel central in your life. But the biggest excuse, and I, I think that this is where this sermon really comes to a head for a lot of us, I'm too apathetic. I'm too apathetic. Apathetic is defined as being unconcerned or indifferent. I don't think we say this aloud, but doesn't it show in our actions? And like I said, our, our faith should be the most important thing about us, and, and yet we resist evangelizing because I think in the deepest part of us, and like I said, we don't say this, but we're largely unconcerned with evangelism. And that hurts to say, but isn't it true? Like, take a look at your own life. If, if we weren't apathetic, we'd be concerned, right? We'd be talking about the gospel if everyone we knew, right? Be, the, the opposite of unconcern is concern. Are you concerned about the eternal state of those around you? Or are you indifferent, unconcerned, and not bothered by the lost, particularly those in your spheres of influence? In so many cases, I think we we stay quiet, we stay in our own lane, we're indifferent, we're unconcerned for the lost. It takes a sermon like this to remind us the need for the gospel for others and to exercise the commands of King Jesus in our lives. And I hope that you get that reminder tonight. So how can we be effective laborers this week? So we've looked at some of the negative. Let's look at some of the things we can do this week to act out these principles. But first I want to clarify that we're not called necessarily to save souls. We're not called to save souls. And what I mean by that is is that it's God who ultimately saves souls. We're just the instruments that are used by God to accomplish his will. And the best thing about evangelism is that God asks us to be a part of his will. And that should be a great joy for us too, that we get to see the kingdom acted out before us, even, even it arrives as a microcosm of a larger reality. But unlike other some perspectives, don't, don't think that if you fail to convert somebody, you fail at evangelism. All, all that we, what we've looked at tonight doesn't mean that a conversation that ends in perceived failure, and what, what I mean by that is that they don't convert, is a failure. It may be a seed that was planted and someone else will have the privilege of conversion. The Apostle Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians 3.6, he says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so his point here is that Paul was simply this conduit for God's glory. Paul was satisfied with being a part of the process. We're not obligated to save souls. We're obligated to be a part of the process as a conduit for God's glory. And with that in mind, here are three things we can do this week to be effective laborers of the harvest. How about this one? 
get into a gospel conversation. The most beneficial thing we can do this week is to preach the gospel. That's plain and simple. Get rid of your excuses. Get rid of everything that has hindered you up to this point about talking to that person about the gospel. And just share the gospel with them. I'm currently attending the, uh, uh, Pastor PJ said, uh, I'm currently attending the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And a couple semesters ago, I took this class. It was called Personal Evangelism. The class demanded that we evangelize to one person a week. And then we had to write a, a witness report on the interaction. Do you know how challenging it is to witness to one person a week? I, I personally was challenged by it. But I'm continuing to challenge myself because I know it's important. And I want to be concerned for the eternal destinies of those around me. And I work with about 50 other people. And if I could evangelize to one person a week at my workplace, I would have evangelized and told every person that I work with the gospel in one year. That every person in my sphere of influence would know the key to eternal life. That should be our goal in those areas where we work, we play, and where we learn. Second, how about this one? Invite someone to third nine or main service. When was the last time that you invited someone to third nine? We go to this gospel-driven, Bible-believing church. Without a doubt, they would come here and they would hear the gospel. And one of the, some of the most powerful conversations are those follow-up conversations afterwards, right? My wife, she's sitting right over here. She's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wives. Go wives. Uh, she invited someone to uh, church a couple weeks ago. She sat through, heard the awesome preaching of Pastor Mike, and afterwards she's in the car and she's driving. We're driving to lunch, and she starts interacting with this person about the topic of the sermon. And it's like these powerful conversations that happen after a sermon like you know one that Pastor Mike gives. It's it's a powerful tool. So get into individual conversations with people. I'm not saying don't do that, but also know that there are resources that Compass Bible Church is offering you. Use those resources. Get into individual gospel conversations, but don't forget about the resources this church has to offer. Lastly, pray for open doors and gospel conversations. So remember what Jesus said in in verse 37 of our passage tonight, to pray for laborers. In order to be an effective laborer, let's pray for opportunities for evangelism. Let's, let's pray for strength and wisdom. In, in, I'm sorry, let's pray for strength in witnessing. Let's pray for boldness, for courage, for words to say. When was the last time that you prayed for a gospel conversation? Maybe that's the first step this week. What would be a travesty is if we left this room unchanged by this message. And what I hope you take away is the need for evangelism in understanding the vastness of the harvest and to be effective laborers for the kingdom of God. Let me reemphasize this point. There's nothing more important in the lives of your friends, of your coworkers, that they know the true living God and his good news of saving grace. So I want to end with this uh, fitting illustration. Um, if you aren't aware, the PJs, right? So I'm not talking past PJ. I'm not talking pajamas. I'm talking the pararescue. So the, 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 Air, the, I'm sorry, the Army, their elite fighting force is Delta Force. Navy SEALs are the Navy's elite fighting force. Marines have Marine Raiders, right? So the elite fighting force of the Air Force are called the PJs. 
It's the PJ's mission to rescue both service members and civilians on air, land, or sea. And their, their motto was brought to my attention, and I, I thought it was appropriate for where we've been tonight. So this is their motto, the motto of the PJs. These things we do that others may live. These things we do that others may live. So listen to this story of one PJ who sacrificed so much for the cause of saving others. So it says, a, a call for a medevac went out on April 11th, 1966, after soldiers from the Army's 1st Infantry Division positioned near Cam Mai, Republic of Vietnam, began taking extreme casualties during a lengthy firefight. Airman First Class William Pitsenbarger, a pararescue crew member assigned to the 38th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron, was dispatched with a team to evacuate the wounded soldiers. As the helo approached the combat zone, Pitsenbarger, sensing the urgency of the situation, volunteered to ride the rescue hoist from over 100 feet in the air to the jungle floor, where he immediately began rendering aid to the wounded and preparing casualties for evacuation. Despite recovering nine casualties, Pitts, as his friends called him, repeatedly refused to leave the ground, insisting on trying to get even more wounded to safety. Another helo arrived on the scene to take more wounded, but as it approached, the assault by the Viet Cong intensified, forcing the helicopter to evacuate. Instead of leaving with the helicopter, Pitts waved off the pilots to tend to the beat-up Americans on the ground who were being battered by sniper and mortar fire. On the ground with the other men, Pitsenbarger took up arms and fought back the Viet Cong for an hour and a half while repeatedly exposing himself to heavy enemy fire to make improvised splints and stretchers out of surrounding vegetation. With the ammunition running low, Pitts ran to the position of mortally wounded soldiers to collect ammunition and distribute it to those still in the fight. He was wounded three times in the process. Ignoring his wounds, he continued to repel the attack and treat wounded soldiers up until the point that the American perimeter was finally breached. He was mortally wounded by a sniper when the line was overrun. In the end, the Americans on the ground suffered 80% casualties. Pitts was clutching a med kit in one hand and a rifle in the other when his body was recovered. For ignoring his own safety and remaining behind to treat and evacuate as many wounded as possible, Pitts and Barger was posthumously awarded the Air Force Cross, which was later upgraded to the Medal of Honor. And so I think it's fitting that the most important thing to Pitts at the end of his life, he died clutching a med kit and a rifle. See, Pitts understood the call of placing his life before others. And while I'm not saying that we all need to be martyred for the sake of the gospel, I'm saying that there's something about how tenacious he was about that motto, that these things we do that others may live. It was his highest goal to save others. I wish sometimes that we had that tenacious spirit. I wish we had that kind of urgency and that conviction to share the gospel with others. As I've said tonight, we often get lulled into this complacency or we give excuses for why we don't evangelize. Let's make a commitment tonight to change that. Let's make a commitment to evangelize this week. And in, in doing so, others may live, not necessarily physically, but become a new creation eternally. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the blessing of today. We give you thanks for uh, this ministry, Third Nine, and uh, just the, the men and women who are in this room. I give you thanks that uh, they have a spirit to learn, that uh, they want to continue to improve themselves in righteousness and holiness. Father, I just pray for um, this message, that it, that it wouldn't 
fall on deaf ears, Father. I just pray that um, throughout this next upcoming week that we would be challenged to see the gospel taken to places that it's never been taken before, Father. I, I just pray for conversations that would open up. I pray for uh, others to continue to pray for their friends and for their, their co-workers and for fellow students, Father. I pray that the gospel would be disseminated on the campus of Saddleback. I, I pray that uh, we would be bold with our communication, that we would be bold with the gospel. I just pray that uh, tonight this wouldn't, we would step out of our complacency, that we would step out of our apathy, and that we would go into the world and make disciples, Father. I pray that. I pray that for this time of uh, discussion. I pray that. I pray for the third nine leaders that we would be able to facilitate a discussion that would challenge and that would um, emphasize the things that are, were spoken tonight, Father. So I pray all these things in your name. Amen.